So if you have your Bibles and would please turn to Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to uh, go through verses 31 through 36. So Romans chapter 8, 31 through 36. And I'll begin by reading those for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So we look at our text this morning as we're continuing on through Romans chapter 8. And Paul is continuing to make his case for salvation in Christ alone. And as he does so, he has really built and is really all these things are really culminating together. And I would challenge you to go back, if you have time this afternoon or tomorrow, to sit down and read Romans chapter 8 up to 36 so you can get a, a better sense of what Paul is trying to build into the, the Romans that he is speaking to in this letter. But he is, he is bringing the a crescendo to his message that we see the echoes of today in the in the very first phrase, um, Deus pro nobis. This idea, God is with us. My Latin is, is terrible. But that phrase, God for us. God is for us, we would read in the English. How do we understand the idea of God being for us? How can we grasp that? And and I liken it a little, and obviously all metaphors relating to our relationship with God are bad, but I liken it to the relationship of a parent and a child. Uh, As a young child, it's very difficult for you to understand the love of your parents for you. Maybe you, you feel loved because you're hugged, or, or maybe you have some sense and understanding that, you know, my food comes from somewhere, and all these things. But when you came into the world, you were utterly helpless. You had no means of communicating other than crying. You had no way to feed yourself. You had no way to, to change your, you couldn't change your own diaper. Your parents did this for you. Um, they carted you all over the place. This is difficult. Anybody who has small children uh, and deals with the whole car seat thing, I mean, this is this is a burden. This is a difficulty. But about, but beyond those things, how many of their own desires did your parents sacrifice 
for your sake. How many Reds games did they not go to because they couldn't go and take a baby? How many things, uh, aspirations that they had, did they forestall or put, put aside altogether? Do you have any idea how much money it takes to raise a child from zero to 18? Alicia and I could have bought two Lamborghinis each. Just saying. Why? Why do parents do this? Why do parents invest so much in their children? Why do they fight for them? Because they love them. Parents love their children. Some of it is innate, ingrained. I've seen young women who have no interest in motherhood at all suddenly be transformed into the most nurturing of mothers that you can imagine. So some of that is innate. Some of that happens. Um, you could say some of it is natural if that's your, your bent, you know, that, well, we're perpetuating the, the, the species. But God builds those things into parents. So, yes, this, this metaphor falls short. Um, you know, kids have a lot going for them. They're pretty cute. You know, they hug you and tell you that you're pretty and that they love you. Those things are great. They draw little pictures of you and say, I, I love you, Daddy. Those things are, those. that's a wonderful feeling. Kids teach us so much about who we are. Um, and then sometimes, to some degree, they finally come to appreciate all that we've done for them. So we have sort of that reciprocal um that appreciation, we feel some of that. Usually that doesn't happen until they have kids of their own, I've noticed. But the question that I have in, in, in thinking about this metaphor, what act of love and appreciation did you ever show to God? If you are among the, the elect today, if you are among God's saved people, when did your salvation occur? Before the foundation of time, before the creation of the earth. When you were born, did you show appreciation to God in that moment? As a young unsaved person, did you cry out in thanksgiving and appreciation to God? No. We were enemies of God. Why would God be for us if we were enemies? Colossians 1.21 says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is us. We were hostile because we wanted to be God. But we see this declaration from Paul, and, it, and it's, it's fascinating. It says, If God is for us. And this is a rhetorical question. This phrasing is rhetorical. And if you look at the the way that it's it's written, it could be translated to say, "Since God is for us." But it's it's a it's a known statement. This is Paul saying, "God is for you." Psalm fifty six nine says, "Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call." This I know that God is for me. If you look back on the landscape of your life and you see things that have happened, 
the way things could have gone, you can begin to understand this idea that God is for you. God spared me from so much destruction. Not because I deserved it, but because he loved me. Ezekiel 36, 9 says, For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. So not only is God for me, God also chooses to use me, despite the fact that I despised him. Genesis 31, 42 says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham... And the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hand and rebuked you last night. So this is, this is a declaration that clearly God is for me. We see God for us in that we aren't destroyed. If the wages of sin is death, we should all be dead. But if we complete the if complete the passage, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So since God is for us, or if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, this is a rhetorical question. This isn't Paul looking for someone with the ability to oppose God. This is Paul saying to the Romans, there is none. There is none that can stand in opposition to God. There's none that can stand against us. Okay, so God has, God has shown love to us. God is for us. God has, has given us things that he, he has set aside before the foundation of the earth for us to do. He has works put aside for us. All right, no one can stand against us. Okay, but what does it mean that God is for us and no one can stand against us? Let's read on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? So we several weeks ago we talked about the inheritance that we have in God. We are brothers, we are sisters with Christ, we're joint heirs with Jesus. God set forth the best thing that he had. God sacrificed and gave up the best that our universe has to offer, namely his son, Jesus. And he gave him freely to purchase us, to buy us back, to redeem us. If you have a coupon and you take it to the store, you redeem the coupon. Christ redeemed us by his death and his resurrection. Why would he hold anything else from us? We have the best. And this is a this is a matter of perspective that we need to to think about because sometimes we have a mindset of I have Jesus. But I would also like a new Escalade. 
I would also like, and we, we have all these thoughts of these other things that it would be nice to have and that we really want, when the reality is we need to understand that we have everything. There is nothing beyond Christ. We already are in possession of the greatest gift the universe has to offer, the greatest gift God has to offer. So what does it mean? Everything else is gravy. <laughs> okay, we're, we're joint heirs with Christ. The thousands of galaxies, all those things, those are, those are our inheritance. Fine. But what are they in comparison to having and knowing Christ? There are very little consequence. So I, what I want us to do is I want us to, to orient our mind around this idea that we already have everything. But, not also, but, but he, but will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's nothing that we need that God doesn't provide. There may be things we want, but there, there's nothing that we need that God doesn't provide us. God is for us. He is on our side. Do you remember uh, the golden chain of salvation we talked about last week? God called us. God chose us. He chose us for good works. And God, who is all-powerful, will also keep us. Who can stand against God? See, if God is for us, if we are with God... Who can stand against him? If you're, uh, as a young child, ever fought with your brother or sister and you had the sense that they were about to cause you some harm, what did you do? You ran to your mom or your dad and you grabbed them by the leg because they wouldn't hurt you. When you're, when you're in the proximity of your mom or your dad, you are safe. We are safe in God. If he is for us, which he is, who can stand against us? Furthermore, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I think this is also something that we struggle with. We, we struggle because Satan constantly reminds us of our failures. Satan constantly reminds us of our weaknesses of, of our sin, our propensity toward it, and he constantly whispers into our ear, you are not good enough. These things that you do make you unworthy of God. You need to stop. You're embarrassing yourself. This is the charge that Satan brings against us. <clears throat> Can anyone actually bring valid a valid charge against God's elect? Again, this is rhetorical. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So if you remember, God calls us and then he justifies us. That means that he makes us right before the law. I heard uh, the explanation of justifies Justify just as if I had never sinned. 
He makes us right before his law. He's the, he's the judge. He's the one who makes the determination. Who can bring any charge against us? Remember that the next time that Satan brings a charge against you and reminds you of your past. It's another trite Christian saying that when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. It's trite, but it's true. We read the end of the book. We know how it ends. We win. God wins. God is for us. Therefore, we win. So those who God calls, he also justifies. He's the judge. He's the keeper of the law. No one can make a successful case stick against us. No one has power in God's court. Satan doesn't have the ability to bring a, a case against us, against, uh, against us, um, against God's elect. We're reading through on Tuesday nights the book of Job, and the, currently the, the theme constantly is Job wants his day in court before God. I'll go before the Lord and I will declare my righteousness. I will declare my, my, my innocence. And he also frequently says, who can stand before God? God is sovereign. So there's kind of this tension, this understanding. Job knows that he can't go before God and defend his own case with any kind of success because God is the justifier. God is the one to whom all sin is against. Continue on to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So if we still are having trouble, if we still say, okay, God is for us, God has set aside works for us to do, no one can stand against us, we have the inheritance of Christ, not only that, we have the inheritance of everything else because Will he not also, him who gave give us graciously all things? We also know, okay, no one can bring a charge against you before God. Okay? But we still feel condemnation. We still feel that um, we are under this weight of sin. And it is our sin that... <coughs> <coughs> that makes it so. Okay, then. Paul says, Christ, who is the one who bought your salvation, Christ, who is the one whose blood covers your sin, he was, more than that, he was the one who died, more than that, he was the one who was raised. He is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on your behalf. So Christ, who took your sin, who suffered the wrath of God because of you, having done nothing himself, is at the right hand of God and is interceding on your behalf. Acts seven fifty four through 60 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. This is of Stephen. Acts seven fifty four through 60. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep or he died. So as Stephen was being martyred, as his life was being taken from him, he looked into heaven and he saw Jesus where? At the right hand of God. And who did he cry out for? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So we have, we have all these things. God is for us. There are, there are, there are, no, um, there are no sins that can be held against us in court. And we have Jesus constantly interceding on our behalf. Jesus is right now in God's presence at his right hand, interceding on our behalf. And this is, this is an incredible thing because Jesus, you know, we, we look at his birth this time of year and then we look forward to Easter as um, as we celebrate that, or as Resurrection Day, more fittingly. <clears throat> Jesus is on the cross because of our sin. And when he leaves the cross, enters the grave, rises, where does he go? To God's right side, right hand, to intercede on our behalf. What do you call that? That's love. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This love that Christ lavished on us, this, this act of interceding on our, on our behalf, who shall separate us from this love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? Or a sword? This isn't a random list. These are things that, that the church in Rome, the church in Jerusalem, the church <clears throat> throughout the world were experiencing. And what Paul is saying, yes, these things are a reality. Yes, these things are terrible. But what are they in light of the glory that is to come. Today, in this moment, there are, are a lot of American Christians who are crying persecution because people are getting mad and saying they don't want them to say Merry Christmas to them. And Tim Allen, the patron saint of power tools, is kind of the, the figurehead of all this. And it's it's ridiculous because that is not persecution. Maybe this is the beginning of persecution. Maybe this is, is a forerunner for it. But people aren't being killed with swords. People aren't being cast from their jobs and their homes into the streets. 
People aren't starving to death. People aren't being beaten. Now they're being harassed a little or or getting a little attitude. But the persecution that Paul is talking about is real. It's something we really can't understand here. As a kid, I would see on TV these African children with, I mean, naked, distended bellies, flies everywhere, and they were asking for money. Unfortunately, we found out later that a lot of that was scam. They were just taking money, and those children weren't being helped. But some were, but this is a reality. Um, most of the world lives on about a dollar seventy-five a day. So you can't buy a cup of coffee really for that. If you do, it's a small cup of coffee here in the United States. But most of the world lives completely completely different than us. We would be surprised to figure out <clears throat> that three quarters of the world lives on rice. They eat rice at most meals. That's a that's a, a a foreign thing to us. We have rice when we feel like having rice. They have rice because it's cheap and it's easy to get a hold of and it fills their belly. We don't live with the fear of, of walking out of here saying the name of Jesus and being beaten. Paul understood this. Paul had been stoned, <laughs> probably to death at least once. Paul had been beaten. Paul had been imprisoned. Paul had suffered shipwreck. Um, Paul had been run out of town many times, so he understood this. And what does he say? Who shall separate us, or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things, tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness, danger or sword, these things don't separate us from the love of Christ. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So after you've suffered a little while, it doesn't mean a little bit of suffering, but it's, it's a short period of time. Romans 8.18 from just a few weeks back. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. <clears throat> That's Romans 8.18. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And finally, Hebrews 12.11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a uh, a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our sufferings purify us. I remember reading years back in the early 2000s, Christianity was was um, really exploding in China, but then the government even began to, to soften to Christianity, and they began to allow churches to operate, and they began to... Uh, they, they had a, a saying that at one time that said... Um, one Christian gained is one Chinaman lost. But during this era, in the early 2000s, the, the saying became, 
one Christian gained is one Chinaman better. So there was a time, and what came out of this was fascinating because the pastors of the Chinese churches were very upset because the church began to get weak because people started to come into the church and they didn't have to worry about whether they would be killed. They didn't have to worry about whether they would would have to learn to live underground. They didn't have to worry about losing their families and their jobs and all these things. So there wasn't a lot on the line. So the church began to get weak. That's interesting. Suffering is something that maybe we're not very interested in. Um, I understand the idea. Uh, nobody really wants to suffer. But our attitude towards suffering probably needs, needs to change. We need to, to update our understanding of what it is to suffer, <clears throat> to suffer for Christ based on what the Word of God says. Verse 36 says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So you may remember in Acts chapter 8, where Philip and the eunuch, Philip encounters a eunuch in in a chariot and in a carriage, and they have this conversation. Uh, Acts 8.32 says, um, Now that the passage of scripture that he was reading, he being the eunuch, was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And this is from the book of Isaiah. This is the image of Christ before his accusers, as read by the, the eunuch that Philip baptized. And when the eunuch read this, he asked Philip what it meant, and Philip shared the gospel, and the eunuch was saved. Now, what's interesting is you can trace Christianity in Ethiopian in Ethiopia back to this eunuch. Um, there's a a lineage, if you will, of faith in Ethiopia. But how is this representative of the gospel? They're having a discussion about the suffering. And Philip explains how Jesus is the, is the lamb. Jesus is the one who suffers silently. Because if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about if we are to enter into Christ's rest, we also have to enter into his suffering. Peter one twenty one. For you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. <clears throat> so maybe the idea of following Christ into suffering isn't exciting. I feel like probably all of us, myself especially, we need to consider how do we think of our salvation do we think of our salvation in christ as us receiving only the benefits are we a understanding of this idea that we are called into christ's suffering why why would we be called to suffer as christ suffered because if we want to enter into christ's righteousness then we have to join him in his suffering 
two challenges that I have that I want us to, to think about is if we aren't willing to suffer as Christ suffered, then I think this reveals a couple things about the nature of our heart. And we need to ask ourselves, is this, is, what's my attitude toward the idea of suffering for Christ? Because one, I think that it, it, it points out that we love our comforts more than we love Christ. And two, I think that it means that we don't fully understand the gospel. Jim Elliott said, and he may not be the first to quote it, but he's the one that I know, a wise man is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18. Um, I read part of this, but I'll reiterate it. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So as we look at Christianity, we have this American idea that we are upgrading our lifestyle, that Christianity is a plug-in that we add to our life that enhances us in some way. This is not the reality of Christianity. The reality of Christianity is come and die so that you might live. We're talking about eternity with God that we do not deserve. We're talking about an eternity of sinlessness, an eternity of safety. We're talking about an eternity of love in the presence of the glory of God. So my admonition today is as we as we move toward Christmas and as we move toward celebrating the birth of Christ, and as we move through Advent, that we consider Jesus' coming was a call for his people to join him, to join him in life, to join him in suffering, and to join him again in eternal life. And if you're here and you haven't accepted Christ, if you're here and these things... Um, are confusing to you or if these things are are stirring you then my my call is for you to to fall on your knees before god confess your sin believe in christ and be saved so as we as we finish our time here uh, with a word of prayer uh, my encouragement again is is to is to read through romans 8 and to think about these things, what is my attitude towards suffering? Am I willing to suffer for the sake of my faith? Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Not needless suffering where we, we go out and cause ourselves harm uh, so that we can be associated with Christ. It's not some sort of self-chastisement. But are we willing to put ourselves in harm's way? Are we willing to have discussions about abortion in a, in a mixed group of people? realizing that we're probably going to be attacked? Are we willing to defend the gospel? Are we willing to defend our children's rights to pray in school? Are we willing to discuss with our close friend the nature of the sin in their lives and the destruction that that means? Are we willing that if it were to cost us everything that we had to follow Christ, are we willing to do that?
Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we're thankful that we can read today this idea that you are for us. That whatever happens in the life that we have here on earth, no matter how steep, how painful the suffering is, is a light and momentary affliction. That, Father, if you have come, if you have changed our heart, if you have changed our stony heart to a heart of flesh, if you are building in us your word, if you are sanctifying us, if we have been called and justified and look forward to being glorified, then, Father, we have nothing to fear from anything on earth. There's, there's nothing that man can do but kill our bodies. Our spirits, Father, are yours. And, Lord, I pray that we would be able to live our lives in a way that reflects this understanding that we have a, another home that we're visiting here, that we are aliens to this place, that this is not our home, that we are here for a work, we're here for a purpose that you set us for, and among those is to call others to Christ, to share your gospel. And Father, I pray that that knowledge drives us to a, a better understanding of what it is to suffer for Christ and to one day to rejoice with Christ in your presence. So as we we finish our time here together, Father, I I pray that you would knead into our heart this word, that you would work into the flesh of our heart all these different things, and that the the, the sin that we have, these things, these desires that we harbor, that those things would be drawn out and that they would be tossed into the fire. So this morning we ask for um, a changing of our minds and a changing of our hearts. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen.